0: Hello, hello, this is Outside In. I'm Justine Paradise.
1: Hello, I'm Taylor Quimby.
0: And we have to talk about something awkward today.
1: Hmm, yeah. It must be said, uh, so everybody who's been calling our listener hotline lately has continued addressing their questions to a certain Sam, for whom it was once named.
0: Never heard of him. Hi, Sam. Hi, Sam. Hi, Sam. Uh, This is Danielle calling from California. Um, But Sam cannot be asked. He is not at the other end of that voicemail (laughs) box any longer.
1: No, we could forward them, but I, I think he's busy. I don't think he's going to answer.
0: I think that would be annoying to him. Yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, so, Justine, I've heard different numbers here, um, but there's like, some like popular wisdom around the idea that it takes like 19 times to break a bad habit. You know what I mean? Like, I used to hear about this with like chewing your fingernails. Like, <laughs> it takes only a few times to start a habit, but it takes like many repetitions to break a bad habit.
0: Yeah, like for me, um, 31 years and counting for biting my fingernails. So.
1: Do you bite your fingernails? <laughs> yeah.
0: Oh yeah, it's a constant oh. struggle. Yeah, oh. you want to see? I we're on yeah, webcam right now. Yeah, yeah. Let right me now. see. This right. over Zoom, this is gonna be a little hard, but um, it's is like very, very, very good. for those me. Those
1: are gorgeous. You've got great nails.
0: That's no, that that's like excellent. Yeah. it's never been like this. You know.
1: Point is, it's time to break this habit. Uh, By replacing it with a new one.
0: So, today we are aiming to prove to you once and for all that questions can be answered by people with names other than Sam. And so, as promised, we are here to debut our new mailbag segment. It's called The Outside Inbox. The new format here is that instead of one person being the sole question answerer for Outside In, we're spreading them out a bit and the entire team is answering questions a little like musical chairs, right?
1: Yeah. Um, Good analogy for this, but also a terrible game, if I may say so. (laughs) Boring. And for this first question, we have got producer Jessica Hunt on the case. Let's hear the question. This is Ingrid from Newmarket.
2: We've been driving around in the seacoast area recently and seeing blue boxes throughout all the salt marshes. And I'm wondering what those blue boxes are. Thank you.
0: Oh, yeah, I think I've seen those too, like seated almost like a bird box a little bit above the water in the salt marshes.
3: Yes, they're cobalt blue and they look like big wooden flat top mailboxes. They really stand out over the flat marshes. And they have to do with a very unwelcome beach visitor greenhead flies. I'm trying to hold back my enthusiasm,
2: but somebody's <laughs> calling to ask me about greenhead flies, thank goodness. My name is Gabrielle Sokolsky and I'm the superintendent of the Cape Cod Greenhead Fly Control District in Barnstable County, so that's all of Cape Cod. And we're charged with managing greenhead fly populations here on the Cape.
0: I love how happy she is to talk about greenhead flies, which I, I know all too well these these flies they're very beautiful but they their bite really hurts
3: yeah they're a kind of horsefly but with sort of emerald iridescent eye orbs and
2: yeah oh my gosh it totally hurts when they bite the greenhead flies kind of cut a little hole in your skin and when she lowers her mouth parts onto that pooling blood she spits into it uh her saliva with an anticoagulant in it and It's actually your body's reaction to her chemicals in that anticoagulant that are the pain. (gasps) That's horrifying.
3: It's not just biting you, it's cutting a hole in your flesh. And the word mouth parts just makes me queasy.
0: Wait, so what does this have to do with the blue boxes and the salt marshes, though?
3: Well, greenhead flies lay their eggs in the mud of salt marshes. And those blue boxes are basically death traps for greenhead flies. They're attracted to that color blue. And because they're what Gabrielle calls belly biters, they fly under the blue boxes, then see the
2: sunlight, and fly up. The bottom of the box is an inverted screen V, so it's sort of like a fish trap where they get caught in the trap. Can't get back out.
3: What's interesting is greenhead flies aren't like mosquitoes or ticks. They don't carry diseases. And another thing, because they actually lay their eggs before... They ever try to bite an animal or a person.
2: Not necessarily that the boxes are doing anything for population control. What they're really doing is cutting down on the nuisance factor.
3: So those blue boxes are there just because we find those greenhead flies
0: annoying. That actually kind of surprises me that it would, it would just be because the bugs bug you. Are the blue boxes up all year? Their season is only about
3: six weeks. But that would be the six weeks that basically everyone wants to be at the beach from the end of June to mid-August. And during that season, Gabrielle says they aren't lying in wait. They are visually seeking you out for a blood meal. Also a terrible, terrible phrase. And she says maybe, like, don't wear a blue bathing suit or bring a blue towel or a blue umbrella because all those
0: things are attractive to greenheads. Jessica, this is terrible news because blue is my favorite color and my favorite bathing suit is blue. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. You can wear it at the lake, but maybe not at the beach.
1: That was producer Jessica Hunt. And next up is uh, the question you answered, Justine, which is also an insect-related mystery. (laughs) It's basically like a murder mystery dinner theater.
0: Yeah, dinner dinner is is noodles tonight.
1: Mm. So this question comes from Maisie in Newport, Vermont, and you spoke about it with producer Felix Poon. Hey. Hey, Felix. I'm really looking forward to this one. And here's the question.
2: A friend of mine recently had a bowl of ramen and a lot of wasps like swarmed into it and then died. And some of them like kind of flopped around and made it out of the bowl of soup, they still died. And she was wondering what poisoned the wasps.
4: So a bunch of wasps flew into someone's ramen and died.
0: And one of my favorite parts about this question is the fact that Maisie then went on to list all of the ingredients in this ramen, which is important, you know, what poisoned the wasps. So I'm going to play it in full
2: here olive oil, tofu, shiitake mushrooms, vegetable stock.
4: This sounds like it would be pretty good.
2: Uh, dried kombu, soy milk, sesame paste, soy sauce, sesame oil, chili oil, rice vinegar, sugar and some corn and scallions and sesame seeds.
4: So this isn't an instant ramen bowl we're talking about, huh? This is like a fancy ramen with a full recipe here?
0: Yeah, homemade, it sounds like. Wow. And to help me answer this question, I talked with Jared Dyer. He's a graduate student at Virginia Tech studying entomology, and he has a lot of respect for wasps.
4: And just the vast diversity in their, the many services and roles they play in the ecosystem and how beneficial they can actually be.
0: He studies a very tiny wasp called Trisilcus japonicus. It's a parasitoid wasp. So it lays its eggs in stink bug eggs, which ends up helping to control the stink bug population.
4: So all this to say that Jared is not approaching this from the perspective that wasps are the villain here.
0: Yes, exactly. And he pointed out that when they swarmed the and they were just probably looking for something to eat.
4: Most adult wasps, they feed on nectar or like anything uh, rich in sugar or carbohydrates like juices or fruits or even honeydew from aphids, soda cans.
0: So once these wasps got to the soup, I do wonder how hot the soup was. But honestly, my first thought off the bat was that maybe these wasps just drowned. Like wasps don't have lungs, but they do breathe through a network of tubes called trachea, which are all over their body.
4: Yeah, that's what I thought.
0: Right. But then I listened back and, you know, she does note that the wasps did manage to like stagger out of the bowl before they died.
4: Like they were poisoned or something? Maybe they're allergic to something.
0: So like, just going down the list of ingredients, one that really stood out to me is the chili oil, because mm. chili oil contains capsaicin, which is the chemical component of a pepper that gives it its spice. And capsaicin is classified by the U.S. EPA as a biochemical pesticide, which is, among other things, used to control insects. So just how spicy was the soup? I know, great question. I feel like that's a critical <laughs> question. Um, but when I asked Jared, the entomologist, he actually pointed to a totally different component of the ramen that I hadn't expected at all.
1: I don't know if
4: poison's the right word. It may have been just like too much of one ingredient, perhaps like the sodium content uh, might have affected it.
0: The sodium.
4: Yeah, so maybe the sodium in the soy
0: sauce. She mentioned soy sauce, soy milk. The dried kombu is a seaweed, so there's possibly salt in that, too. Mm-hmm. So I actually also called up this organic wasp removal company in Connecticut.
2: Yes, this is Debbie Masecki. I'm from the Yellow Jacket Experts.
0: It's called the Yellow Jacket Experts. And when I asked her, you know, what do you think right off the bat, and I didn't give her any lead in at all. And the very first thing she said was.
2: My first guess would be the sodium.
0: Sodium overdose.
2: And um, insects that would ingest it would. Probably not fare very well with that.
4: So, are we saying that's that's the answer is the sodium?
0: I think that there's, it's hard to know, uh, you know, after the fact they're doing a post mortem without, you know,
4: <laughs> without doing an autopsy on the wasp.
0: Yeah, without a wasp autopsy, I'm not sure, but I, I think that <laughs> the sodium content is one option. The, um, the chili oil is another, mm. but it also could have, I wonder if it was just a stress from all of those different things combined with the hostile environment of the soup itself. Thank you to Felix Poon for playing foil for my Wasp Ramen murder mystery. He will be back later in the show. Um, Let's take a break.
1: Wasp autopsy, by the way, would be a great tongue twister. Wasp
0: autopsy. Wasp wasp is hard to say, as I learned uh, earlier in this episode. Wasp. And especially wasps. Wasps. Wops. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's like a Nicki Minaj and Megan Thee Stallion song. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Welcome back to Outside In. Today we are answering listener questions that came into the metaphorical, and I will say, like, you know, literal Outside In box.
1: But I do, I mean, yes, literal as in it's like a voicemail, but I do wish it was yeah. an actual Santa-style sack that we could, like, open up every week, you know?
0: Oh, that would be a nice sound effect, too. Oh, you know? that would be perfect. Next up, Taylor, Mm-hmm. you're back. Here I am. Uh, <laughs> to answer another listener question.
1: So uh, I really liked this because this is, you know, our first time with, the outside
2: inbox thing.
1: I, I kind of like this question that I found that felt very much about beginnings. Beginnings!
2: This is Bill from Lyme, New Hampshire, with a big question on the origins of life. Does anybody know if that was a singular event, or was there a particular period in Earth's development that spawned the creation of life in multiple places over periods of time? And finally... Is there any evidence at all that that process may still be going on somewhere in or under the Earth?
0: All right. So this is a a good two-part question. Mm -hmm. So the first one, was life a singular event?
1: So if you go back billions of years, there was definitely a time when the ingredients for life
5: were very abundant. It all started with Darwin. You know, Darwin wrote a letter saying... What if life formed in this warm little pond, this primordial soup? So that's when that terminology sort of came around.
0: I like, that's the origin of the terminology, but I like thinking that life started with Darwin.
1: <laughs> he was the very beginning.
0: First life form.
1: So, anyway, this is Luke Steller, a PhD student and educator at the Australian Center for Astrobiology at the University of South Wales in Sydney. <gasps> and he mentions Darwin's <laughs> primordial soup because there's this idea that once upon in early Earth, all the building blocks of life were kind of cooking up. In this weird hot stew. Um, Was it
0: hot? We know it was hot.
1: It was. Well, it needed heat. Heat is like one of the ingredients or elements required. Now, there are competing theories about where on Earth this sort of thing might have happened. Maybe deep underwater ocean vents where you've got fissures in the seafloor shooting out, you know, mixtures of boiling hot water and chemicals. Uh, Or maybe it happened on land, you know, around hot springs or volcanic geysers. Either way, you've got to have this stuff interacting in order to get the thing we called life. Things like RNA, also amino acids, proteins, lipids, stuff like that.
0: OK, so the simmer stage. When was that?
1: So that's very roughly somewhere between 3.6 and 3.9 billion years ago.
5: There's a good chance it might have popped up more than once in that really fertile period. So Luke says, yes, it, there's a good chance that it, life you know, sort of
1: happened. It occurred more than once in this period. But... But maybe that's not the best way to think about it. Oh. You know how we have this image of an evolutionary tree where all the plants and animals on Earth can be traced back to the single trunk, um, which is which is uh, referred to sometimes as the Luca, or the last universal common ancestor. Right, kind
0: of looks like a sports bracket.
5: Yeah, exactly. You can also sort of view that tree of life also having an interconnected root system underneath it. So you'd have had all these different chemical processes Coming together and eating each other or collaborating together and forming, you know, something that would have brought all those different things together to produce that one sort of single bottleneck, Luca, that then evolved back out from there into everything else.
0: Oh, I love the the root image, the tree of life. So maybe did life spark more than once, but then it kind of blended together at different points? Or
1: collaborated or something. (laughs) You know, what we think of as life is all these building blocks that came together and created things like a cell.
0: The second part of the question, though, is, well, could it happen today or, like, is it happening today?
1: OK, this is my favorite one. In a lot of ways, the conditions for creating life have largely been ruined <laughs> by the already created life on Earth. Uh, first of all, almost all of the oxygen in our atmosphere was created by life on Earth. Uh, and that oxygen is corrosive to a lot of the organic molecules Um that that were needed during those early days to make that nice thick primordial soup, and even if by chance the process did get going, good luck surviving in a world that is now full of hungry predators. Oh, life's like too advanced.
5: You know, there's no bubbling pools full of beautiful, you know, organic RNA and that kind of stuff, because a little bit of bacteria will come along and just chomp that right up.
1: That being said, our caller is onto something. He asked if life could start under the earth. And Luke said there are some really interesting theories out there about the possibility of a, quote, shadow biosphere. Um, Different forms of life completely unrelated to our own family tree that might exist deep in the Earth's crust. It's
0: both deeply wonderful and deeply terrifying. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. producer taylor quimby thank you very much for that
1: you are very welcome
0: next up um in this one we are breaking from the all questions are questions about animals theme and so producer felix poon is gonna take this one and tell you all about it
1: no he's gonna tell me about it like you're not gonna be here like you're leaving oh i see and you're gonna what go good have a water break ramen, ramen break? break yep mm. and in the meantime uh felix welcome back
4: thank you it's good to be back and here's the question I tried to answer.
1: So New Hampshire is a pretty hilly mountainous state uh, with a lot of wrinkles in the landscape. And I was wondering if you ironed out those wrinkles and flattened the whole state, how much bigger would it be by area? Hmm. Huh. You know, it is interesting because if you're like standing at the bottom of the White Mountains, I would think way bigger. Yeah. But there's, there's also a lot of parts of the state that are pretty flat.
4: Yeah. I did get an expert. I spoke to a guy named Larry Garland. He's the map maker for the Appalachian Mountain Club. And on his computer is this program that's used for mapping things. It's called ArcGIS.
1: You're going to tell me that Larry has a program that he can just use and he's going to spit out the answer? That is what he offered to do, actually. I
4: started running that program at quarter of nine this morning and five hours later, it's still running. So the thing is, Larry doesn't typically use this software for, for this sort of thing. He uses it to calculate the mileage for a hiking trail. And what he does is a two-step process. First, he hikes a trail carrying GPS equipment. That gives him the flat and linear distance he's traveled on the trail.
1: The old-fashioned way to do this uh, was to use a surveyor's wheel, right?
4: Yeah, that, uh, you know, it's basically a wheel on a stick that you push along the trail. Mm -hmm. Uh, Larry's GPS gives him more or less the same thing, uh, which he then takes into the ArcGIS software to make it 3D. I drape that onto a 3D surface and I use the software to calculate the sufficient distance, the distance that that trail has as it lies on that terrain model.
1: I love this image of draping a line over a 3D model. It's very elegant.
4: Yeah, and uh, he's using that same elegance to get the surficial area of New Hampshire. You know, it wouldn't be that much different. You're just draping a whole cloth or something like that over the terrain model instead of just a line.
1: Okay, so I I, I feel like um, I'm waiting with bated breath here, Felix. What did the software (laughs) actually tell us?
4: Well... Larry's computer couldn't quite handle all the data. It crashed before he got an answer.
1: Hmm, okay, all right, so it's not gonna be that simple, I see, now. No,
4: yeah, so I decided to speak to someone else to see if there was a way to do this without software. His name is Russ Congleton, he's a professor of remote sensing and geographic information systems at the University of New Hampshire. And Russ's idea was to get hundreds of volunteers on the eastern border of New Hampshire with surveyor's wheels and walk them across the state. Oh, I like this.
1: Uh, So you assembled an army of volunteers, I'll take it?
4: (laughs) (laughs) I I think Russ was just trying to illustrate a theoretical point. Okay. In seriousness, Russ said you can basically do the same thing by going online, buying a 3D raised relief map of the state. It's like this bumpy 3D map, Um, and then
1: draping some string over it and measuring that string. I think that sounds like a really cool idea, but it would be very difficult to feel like you got a really accurate um, accurate reading. I mean, like the string would have to hug the contours of the map, the map would have to be really accurate, and I feel like, I don't know, I don't know.
4: Yeah, well, I, I haven't tried it.
1: Okay, <laughs> all right, good, good. Okay, so do we have an answer to our listener Ian's question
4: then? Um, actually, we do, because Larry, the AMC map maker, uh, he got back to me after we spoke. And he said he ran the ArcGIS program to calculate the surficial area separately for the 10 different counties of New Hampshire, and that did not crash his computer. And so he added them up to get the total surficial area of the state.
1: Okay, and drum roll. It was 133
4: square miles bigger than the flat plain area, which is about
1: 1.5% bigger. Oh, wow. I I was going to say, like, that's way bigger, but just 1.5%, huh?
4: Yeah, yeah. Well, Larry did give a lot of caveats. He said he ran it at a 90-meter resolution raster, which basically, (laughs) um, you know, it's a pretty low resolution.
1: Okay, I'll take your word for that. (laughs) Okay, so there it is. For now, New Hampshire would be 1.5% bigger if you ironed out the wrinkles. Felix, I am super impressed that you actually came up with an answer uh, to what I thought was a fun but unanswerable question.
0: This episode of Outside In was produced and mixed by Taylor Quimby, Felix Poon, Jessica Hunt, and me, Justine Paradise. It was edited by Taylor Quimby. Rebecca Lavoie is our executive producer. Special thanks to everybody who's called in and left us a question. Don't forget that if you have a question about the natural world, we are all ears. Send a voice memo to OutsideIn at nhpr.org. You can also call our hotline, and that number is one 844 Go otter.
1: I'm gonna put a little otter sound in there.
0: What would an otter sound be? I don't know, like. <laughs> I was thinking
1: more of like a. <laughs> oh wow! I bet we are so wrong. Yep.
0: <laughs> Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Additional music in this episode came from Blue Dot Sessions. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio.
1: Sign box, we will listen to your questions and maybe we'll answer them. But maybe we won't, cause we don't know.